0: We've been making our way through the book of Galatians, and we have finally arrived at our, our final passage uh, this morning. Just, a, just to give you a bit of a road um, in the next few months we're going to be doing a series through uh, the book of Psalms. I'm not preaching the whole book of Psalms. We're going to kind of work our way through a couple different Psalms as they come. And then in this fall, we're going to pick back up in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 12, and we'll finish the year out uh, with the book of Joshua. So, excited to get into that. Excited to arrive at this passage on July 4th, Independence Day. I actually think it's quite fitting that we're here on a day like this. If you had to describe... Oh, and I always for, I, I've, I've forgotten my general introduction, which is if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18. So Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. If you had to describe what today means to you in one word what would that word be what's the word that comes to your mind when you think of independence day freedom right for me that word is freedom freedom is a costly thing it can be a very fragile thing but it is a precious thing something that is worth defending something that's worth celebrating so I hope you've got plans to celebrate today as Christians we have a reason to celebrate not only the freedom of our nation but the greater freedom which Jesus has secured for us through his work on the cross. And Jesus has freed his people from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of our fallen flesh. He has purchased our innocence. And through his resurrection, he has poured out on us every spiritual blessing, taking us from being the enemies of God and making us to be beloved sons and daughters with him. True freedom is in Christ. He has rescued us and called us to live as a free people, as citizens of his kingdom. So for every believer, for the believer, every day really is a day to celebrate and to live in the liberty which Christ has purchased and which he has secured for us. He's made us alive. He's made us new. He's made us free. Now, you know, we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th, the day when representatives from the 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence and we became our own independent sovereign nation. But the reality is that it was not until the signing of the Treaty of Paris in September 1783 that the conflict actually ended. Today is the day that we celebrate when we became our own nation, but there were many years of fighting ahead until that document was signed. Until then, the British government always considered the United States merely to be a group of colonies in rebellion. In a similar way, even as Christians celebrate the freedom which we have received through faith in Christ, even as we walk according to the Spirit who lives in us, we are not at peace yet. Though we have been made one with Christ, though we have crucified the flesh with him, the battle with sin and the flesh still rages on. Our sinful nature is a tyrant which demands our service. And though it has been defeated, it is still dangerous. For this reason, believers are called to be on their guard. We must live and walk by the Spirit, not according to the desires of the flesh. That's been the focus of, our, of, of the past few weeks as we've looked at Galatians 5 and, and Galatians 6. When Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. He wrote to churches that were caught in a trap of a distortion of the gospel of grace. Uh, We've seen that certain false teachers were ridding the cross of Jesus of its power, saying that he merely makes us capable of keeping the law, that in order to be found righteous in God's sight, we have to earn his favor through works. Paul, on the other hand, has shown that the only way to be counted righteous in God's sight Is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone with the arrival of Jesus and his work for us the demands of the law have been fulfilled and our sin has been atoned for so Christians live in a new age we have become members of the kingdom of God through faith we are heirs with Christ sons of Abraham because we have put our confidence in what he has done for us we no longer live in reliance on our own efforts we thrive in the security he has achieved for us. So that background, those those realities bring us to consider the final words that Paul had to say to these churches. As we look at what he has to say here, we're reminded of the exclusivity of the gospel of grace. Uh, We gain insight into the motives of prideful ministry and then we learn to lean into the hope that christ gives to all who believe in him and to all who have been born again to live as free citizens of the kingdom of god so as is our tradition please stand for the reading of god's word as i read from galatians 6 verse 11 through 18 this is the word of the lord See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Paul's closing words here resemble to me what you'd expect to hear from an attorney in their final case to a journey, to a jury. Over the past few weeks, we've been focusing on what it means to live as a free people of Christ. Uh, Through his work, Jesus has set his people free to live not according to the old desires of their flesh, but to live in step with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is at work in believers, convicting us of our sin, interceding for us, applying God's word to us, and teaching us to love one another and to bear with one another, and so to fulfill the law of Christ. So in these final words, we've kind of gotten away from the conflict. And now, once again, we're reminded of the conflict that was going on in these churches. Even as Paul has reconciled the church, called them to walk together as as the gospel demands, now he turns again to address the ministry of these certain false teachers that were trying to lead the churches away from the gospel of grace to embrace a gospel of faith plus works. In doing so, Paul exposes the true motives of these false teachers, and he reminds his readers not to give into the allure of this other gospel. And then finally, he calls his readers to rest in the grace which we have received through Jesus, to live as new creatures in the blessing of his freedom. And so that kind of brings us to consider the main idea of our passage here, which is this, that Christ has released us from the demands of the law and ushered in a new age. So live in his grace as new creatures. So the main idea of this, and just put in a few words, is to live as new creatures, which we are in Christ. So I have three points for you this morning, um, which if you have the sermon notes, you should see. The first, we'll be, first, we'll be looking, I have a, a couple pithy ways of putting this. So first, we're looking at large letters. Large letters. Second, we look at the sinister ministers. Sinister ministers. Sinister ministers. And then finally, we look at the new creation, the new creation and the work of Christ. Let's begin with these large letters. This is the priority of getting the gospel right. Now, imagine that you had been present with Paul, and you were sitting there at the table watching him compose this letter to these churches in Galatia, churches that he loved even as he was frustrated with them. At this point in history, it was really common to have these literary secretaries who would write for you uh, while you dictated to them as to what you wanted to say. We know that Paul used the services of men like that, men like Tertius, uh, who composed and wrote uh, the, the book of, recorded the book of Romans, uh, and he apparently had done the same thing here in his letter to the Galatians. Now you can imagine Paul sitting there, pouring out his heart, love and love for these churches, composing these these, these words to these churches with tears in his eyes, with agony in his heart. He loved these churches, though we're well aware of his dismay, his, his frustration, and even his confoundment as to how these brothers and sisters had been hindered in their walk with Christ. But now, confident in the Lord, confident that these churches would read his words and that they would return to the grace the gospel grace they had first received taking no other view he asked the scribe for the quill and then he writes in big bold letters verse 11 see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand now this might seem like a a a bit of a detail something we don't really need no need to know necessarily
1: capital letters
0: though have a way of getting our attention. Um, I can think of one person in particular that always sends me texts in capital letters, and it's none of you, but I get these texts and they, that's like, they sound angry. It's just like they're yelling at me through this. Capital letters get your attention. If you're leaving a note to somebody and you really want to make sure that they notice something, you write it in big, bold, capital letters. So this statement from Paul in verse 11 may strike you as a really insignificant detail. It kind, of, uh, it kind of seems that if Paul was writing in this way, it's something you could observe for yourself. But I'm really thankful God did inspire Paul to include this little note in the midst of his final address because we would not know that it was written in such bold type if he hadn't have said this. Paul loved the Galatian churches. And he wanted them to know that this letter and his concern for them was true and authentic. So in taking up the pen here, this conclusion takes on an even stronger personal feel than just his words. This is written with his own hand. Uh, These words weren't written in the measured strokes of a scribe's hand, in the hand of a professional. They were poured out of the heart of Paul onto the paper, like a concerned parent speaking to a beloved child. Paul wanted the Galatians to see the importance of the matter here. He wanted them to know the priority of getting the gospel right. So as we look at these large letters, that's, that's really what we're seeing, the priority of getting the gospel right. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The message of the gospel of grace is a message which excludes hope in anything or in anyone other than Christ Jesus. Jesus is an exclusive Savior. There is no salvation in any other name, no one else by which we may be saved. This is a conviction that many in the world find intolerable. But it is a conviction which, in the end, demands a response. As C.S. Lewis wisely observes in his book, Mere Christianity, you will either accept what Jesus says concerning himself, that it is true, or you must dismiss him as a liar, a lunatic, or a fraud. The false teachers who had come to the churches in Galatia were happy to accept that Jesus was the Christ, even that He was the Son of God. What they refused to believe, denoted by what they were teaching, is that we come to the Father exclusively through Him, and not on the basis of what we do. They were teaching that a man or a woman had to do certain things in order to be accepted into God's people. They said if you wanted to receive the blessing of righteousness, if you wanted God to look at you and say, Innocent, then you had to keep the commands of the Mosaic law. Now, specifically, we see in verse 12 that they were teaching that you had to be circumcised. Now, circumcision had a role, an important place, which has identified a man as a, member, as a member of God's covenant people. God gave circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17 to mark him as a sign of the covenant promise. It was put in place along with the law of Moses until the coming of faith would be revealed, we read in Galatians 3.23. The commands of the law functioned as a guardian until Christ came. We saw that in Galatians 3, verse 24. But now that Christ has come, we have seen that a new age and a new covenant has arrived. Acceptance before God, righteousness, is not accomplished through our own works, but is received as a matter of His grace. We read that in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, sorry, this is Galatians 4, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So then we are no longer slaves but sons, and if sons, then heirs through God. That was Galatians 4, 4 4-7. Paul's large letters communicate the priority of getting the gospel right. Since if we distort the gospel of grace, we can have no hope that Christ will be of any advantage to us. Earlier in this letter, Paul told the Galatian believers that by following this other gospel, they were abandoning the one who had called them out out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Galatians 5, verse 2, he says, Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. On the final day of judgment, there will not be one person who is let into heaven on the basis of the merit of their own work. For we read in Romans 3 that neither Jew nor Gentile has any advantage before God because all are under sin. For it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Therefore, Paul observes for us, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, without exception. The gospel of grace is this, that God did what we could not. He has manifested His righteousness apart from from the law although we read that the law and prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe we are justified meaning we are declared righteous innocent in God's sight by a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a payment by his blood to be received by faith so when Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life, he meant it. There is no other way. Paul knew this. He had staked his life on it. He had staked his soul on it. And that is why he wrote to the Galatians with these large letters. He cared that the churches in Galatia got this, that they understood the gravity of the situation, and that they avoided the lethal pitfall of this distortion of the gospel which was being pushed on them. There are many messages out there. There are many faiths. There are many philosophies, many worldviews. There is only one gospel. And there is only one Savior, one way we can have eternal life and escape eternal judgment. And that is the gospel of grace which is commended to us in this letter. Now, there are always wolves who will seek to use the flock of Christ to their own advantage. So on our next point, we want to look at these sinister ministers and their gospel of works. Uh, Really, what we're looking at is their motives of why they preached what they preached. Uh, Paul poured out his heart in this letter to the Galatian churches because he knew they were in terrible danger. He has shown in this letter why this distortion of the gospel is so lethal, why it's so out of touch with the gospel of grace which these churches had first received, which he had preached there. Now, in, in verses twelve and thirteen, uh, he exposes for us the true motives of these men who were trying to lead the churches astray from the gospel of grace. We we see as we read what he has to say here that these men were looking to use the church, uh, that the churches really for their own benefit. Uh, they were looking to serve themselves at the expense of the flock of God. They were ruled by fleshly priorities, not by the priorities of Christ. And so we find that they were preaching a version of the gospel which taught that we ought to put confidence in human effort not in the work of Christ for us. Now the charges that Paul lays here about the motives of these false teachers is that they were preaching not in the service of Christ but in the service of their own selves. And he provides us with three pieces of evidence that these men were not operating according to the spirit but rather that they were operating according to the flesh. And These are not exclusive to the situation in Galatia. Paul's description here is actually very helpful, helpful for us in, in um, helping us to avoid a flesh-driven ministry. So we want to look at this and, and, and consider even how this guards us. So first, Paul says that these men were serving the priorities of their own flesh. They were serving the priorities of their own flesh. Now look at the first part of verse 12. Paul calls these men those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. So they're seeking a sort of approval that comes from men, and they saw an opportunity to get that approval by trying to compel Gentile believers to adopt circumcision and then to live enslaved under the demands of the law. Uh, these men, we see, are motivated by pride. They're looking to have their egos stowed. Now this is the complete opposite of what Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 1 where he warns, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to have it seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So these false teachers were were looking for commendation. They wanted to be seen. And in doing so, they show that their true priority was not the approval of God, but the approval of men. They compromised the gospel of grace and tried to twist it in a way that served their own purposes of their own pride. A fleshly ministry prioritizes the accolades and the recognition of men. Now, it's not wrong to recognize faithful work, I think it's actually a good thing. But that's not what was going on here. These men were trying to shift the focus of the gospel from the work of Christ to the efforts of their flesh. And in doing so, they were diminishing the glory of Christ. They were trying to make a name for themselves at the expense of the name of Jesus. The second charge, the second piece of evidence that Paul presents us with is that we see that they were, these men were looking to escape persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, no one likes to suffer. As Christians, we are not called to go out and to find ways to suffer. Suffering will always attend the true gospel. We don't have to go out and find it. Jesus says that if we would be his disciples, then we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross, and we must follow him. These teachers were looking for a way to get around that call. They were looking for a way that they could avoid suffering for allegiance to Jesus. They had not listened to Jesus when he spoke of the costliness of being his disciple. And so we see that they were trying to have the approval of Christ and the approval of the world at the same time. Now, you may have heard of these stolen valor cases. Maybe you've, you've seen a video where someone uh, confronts someone who is maybe wearing a military uniform with all the ribbons and the medals uh, and, and try, in an effort to maybe get... Uh, a a veteran's discount, or just trying to get, uh, they want to hear people say thank you for your service when they themselves haven't served. Uh, So you can see, uh, there's plenty of videos out there where actual people who are in the military will walk up to someone and say, what's this mean? And they have no idea, and they show themselves to be a fraud. In this case, we see that these false teachers were trying to wear the uniform of Christ without actually submitting to his commands. They wanted the benefits of Christ without the commitment to Christ. They wanted the glory of Christ without the cross of Christ. Friends, beware the crossless gospel. If we empty the gospel of the cross of Christ, we have emptied it of its power. Without the cross, the gospel isn't good news. Because without the cross, there is no atonement for sin. There is no defeat of death. And there is no salvation for sinners. The gospel centers on the cross of Christ. Now the third piece of evidence that Paul gives us is we see that they were boasting in the flesh. So they were serving the priorities of the flesh. They were trying to get away from the cross. And they were boasting in their own works. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not keep do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So these false teachers are hypocrites to the highest degree. Uh, they stood condemned by their fleshly motives and by the fact that they charged others to do what they themselves could not. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the scribes because they preached but they did not practice. They tied heavy burdens on other people's shoulders, but they themselves were unwilling to move even their little finger. They did all their deeds to be seen by others. They loved the titles. They loved the respect. They loved being called a righteous person and a teacher. And so Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you would you either ent- you would you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Friends, these are the marks of a fleshly ministry. It has the appearance of a right of righteousness but it lacks the substance of righteousness the, these men who wanted the Galatians to live by the law were condemned because they themselves couldn't keep the, keep the law they did not have the eternal good of the churches that they were had infiltrated in mind rather they aimed to gain notoriety for themselves by preaching a false gospel aiming to please fleshly desires we see that they preached a fleshly gospel blind to the disaster that was at the end of this road. They wanted the Gentile believers to be circumcised, to submit to their teaching, so that they could build a name for themselves. The law is not a means to righteousness. We have seen that laid out for us in the book of Galatians. The law tells us what it means to be righteousness, but in doing so, it simply reveals our inability to keep it. It exposes our need for a Savior. The only way we can be counted righteous is through faith in Christ. Our efforts will always fall short because of the rule of sin that is in us. The only way we can be counted righteous is through Christ's work for us. He is the one who paid for sin. He is the one who has conquered death. It is through His cross that our sin has been put to death. It is through His wounds by which we are healed. And because He lives and rules and reigns, we have a sure hope that all who trust in Him are accepted. Christ makes us new. Which brings us to consider our third point. An authentic ministry and what it means to be a new creation. Now throughout this letter, Paul has drawn a very bold distinction between what it means to live according to the flesh and what it means to live according to the spirit. The false motives of these false teachers is exposed in that they are not living by or for the spirit but are actually opposed to God and are enemies of his people. So in verses 14 through 18, Paul shows us what it means to be a new creature in Christ because of God's grace. We see the priority of this new creation in verse 15, where Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So what does count, we have to ask? Well, the answer he gives us is a new creation, a new creation. Now the language Paul uses here is similar to what Jesus said to in Nicodemus in John 3 verse 3 when he told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We become new creatures when we are joined to Christ by faith. It's something he does in us. And Paul explains this in depth in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21, where he talks about how we all once lived and regarded Christ and each other according to the flesh. But now that we have been joined to Christ by faith, we become something new. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What he was before has passed away. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This spiritual rebirth is is not something that we can earn. Since Paul explains, all this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which is that in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So the new creation is not something that we can aspire to to create ourselves. Rather, it is something that is to be received. It is received when we hear the message of the gospel, when we respond to it by repenting and by believing and trusting in the sacrifice of Christ for us. It is something that God does in us. The new creation, what Paul says is the thing that counts, is the work of Christ who has conquered and who is making all things new. We can see the priority of this new creation in Paul's own ministry. So there's a, there's this really stark contrast between Paul's priorities and the priorities of these false teachers. Uh, what he says here distinguishes his ministry from the ministry uh, of, of the of these of these men who were teaching that we ought to rely on our own works. He begins, but far and these are some of the most powerful words in the Bible. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross. Of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world spiritual new birth begins at the cross whereas the flesh boasts in pride and it boasts in its own achievements the gospel of grace and the Spirit of God teach us to boast in the bloody cross of Jesus boasting in the cross means acknowledging that we are incapable of saving ourselves Boasting in the cross means trusting in the work of Jesus for us. And boasting in the cross means embracing Christ's call to discipleship, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Him, because our hearts love Him and find Him more lovely than anything this world can offer us. That is what it means to boast in the cross. It is to find Jesus as the most precious thing in our lives. Notice here, though, that allegiance to Christ means being united to Him in such a way that we don't care about the things which the world around us finds important. Our old priorities are driven out by the priorities of the Spirit of Sonship which we have received from God. Paul says, My boast is in the cross of Christ. Uh, My boast is in something that exposes my weakness and my worthlessness and my ugliness and which magnifies the beauty and the glory of Him. My, my life has ceased to be about me. It's not about me anymore. It's not mine anymore. It's His. And I love Him because He loves me. He's given me greater desires for greater things. And when I look at the riches of this world, they have a foreign taste to me now. I find them revolting because I have died to the world and the world has died to me. And now I have taste for the glory of heaven and nothing in this world satisfies the longings of my heart. That is the heart of what Paul is saying here. And in verse 17, we see that Paul makes a really interesting comment. He says, For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So, whereas these men who were troubling the churches in Galatia were doing everything they could to avoid suffering for the cross, Paul had put his body on the line. For the gospel of grace which he had received and been commissioned to preach now, you can learn a lot about a person and about what they believe by what they're willing to give up paul was willing to give up his safety he was willing to give up his reputation he gave up his career his comfort and ultimately his own life while these false teachers were trying to get christians to have the mark of circumcision marks which paul says don't have in the end any significance Paul bore marks of allegiance to Jesus and to the scandal of his cross because he was willing to suffer, and his willingness to suffer was a testimony to the authenticity of his motives. Being a new creation in Christ means that we have died to the old priorities that used to rule us, the sort of priorities that we see were ruling these men who were promoting a false gospel. Being a new creature in Christ means that we don't just accept the cross and what it says about us and about our abilities to please God, but that we actually boast in what God has done for us and that we refuse to take any credit for our salvation. Uh, Being a new creature in Christ means being born again by the power of the Spirit, living with new priorities, loving God with a pure heart, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. The gospel of grace empties us of boasting in any other thing. It prevents us from waiving our achievements as evidence of our own work. And it makes, it makes them opportunities, really, to draw attention to the glory of Christ by whom we live and move and have our being. If you are in Christ, then you are not your own. You are His. And that changes everything. It gives us new priorities, It satisfies the longings of our hearts. It makes us prioritize each other, and it fills us with a longing and a hope of the glory that is to come. In verse 16, Paul pronounces this blessing. He says, And for all who walk by this rule, which is referring to that priority of the gospel of grace and the new creation, which Paul counts, says is what counts. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, it is hotly debated as to who exactly Paul is speaking of when he says the Israel of God. This is actually about the only place that we can really find Paul speaking in these terms. And so scholars really go to town on this. So um, given what Paul has emphasized in this letter, that we are the sons of Abraham, the sons of God, if we are united to Christ by faith, and given what he says about circumcision and uncircumcision not being of any matter but only a new creation. And then given the way that Paul emphasizes how Christ has reconciled us all together in him, making one man, I am convinced that Paul is referring to the whole people of God here. That is everyone who has been, who is, and ever will be saved. Now provided that is the case, then Paul is ending his letter with a promise of peace, mercy, and grace for those who cling to Christ by faith according to the inheritance which he has secured for them. So if we live, if we sow according to the Spirit, we read that in verse 8, we will reap, we will inherit eternal life. Now, this is a very unique benediction. It's unlike any conclusion that we read in any of Paul's other letters. Uh, it's actually i've never read the benediction from galatians when we end the service because it just lacks the regal language that we find in some of paul's other letters and some and and it lacks these personal greetings that we read in other in other epistles that he wrote but here's what he does do we see that he addresses the church and these churches as his brothers saying the grace of our lord jesus christ be with your spirit brothers amen so he finishes this letter by commending what he has defended throughout this entire letter, which is the grace of God in Christ to the church, so that it will indeed stand against those who are trying to take grace away by adding to it. Here again, we see Paul's confidence in the preserving power of God, that what he starts, he finishes, and that he will not lose one of his precious children. The work of Christ is, for us is secure. He's accomplished what we could not. We are at the mercy of his grace and his love, and we see the measure of that grace and that mercy on the cross, where he bore our sins and where he died. We see the effectiveness of his sacrifice in the resurrection. If we lose sight of the authentic gospel, the gospel of grace which Paul delivered to the churches of Galatia, and which we have received ourselves through the witness of the word, then we have lost the very essence of what it means to be a christian so let us be on our guard against anything and against anyone that would distract us from the gospel of grace but more than that let us walk by the spirit and the grace we have received boasting in the cross of christ by which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world praise god for his gospel of grace let's pray Lord Jesus, we thank you that our confidence is not called to be to rest in what we can accomplish. Because as we look at the works of our lives, we see see some good things, but we also see many weak things. And we know that if we would try to live by our own efforts, we would fail. We thank you, Father, that you have not abandoned us, but that you have given Christ to be the payment for the sins of the world so that anyone and everyone who repents and believes can have eternal life and will have eternal life because of what you have done for us. We stand in awe of you in this great mystery. And we ask, Father, for the strength to live day in and day out for the cross of Christ in hope of the glory that is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand for our final song.